You're listening to Life and Leadership, A Conscious Journey, the podcast that shares wisdom and strength. Join your host, Dr. Michelle St. Jane's weekly conversation on how to have a positive impact for people, planet, and the wider world. If you want to live a life of intention, be proactive with your time, and bring your vision for the future to life one today at a time, you are in the right place at the right time. Let's get started. Each of us is unique in our own beautiful experiences and gifts as we journey through life and leadership, discovering and developing our talents and evolving our values. Sharing our values knowingly brings us joy and to others. Our inner knowing knows our strengths. Listen to that voice. Be consciously aware, acknowledge your talents and celebrate those you see in others. Why? My featured guests today are all about releasing the power of your values for authentic happiness. Co-authors Alan Williams and Steve Payne discuss their book, My 31 Practices. Their book was dedicated to the alchemy of relationships, curiosity, and serendipity. My 31 Practices offers a path to clarity and a framework to find your values. Superhero Alan and Steve came together in collaboration, an alchemy of transdisciplinary skills focused on your values, your practices, your experiences. The authors show you how to release the power of leaning into the best version of yourself on your conscious journey. Let's look a little closer at who these alchemists are. Alan Williams coaches progressive leaders in the service sector, organizations, internationally and in the UK. Alan's focus is to deliver values-driven service for sustained performance. He is a published author and speaker. His co-author, Steve Payne, is an international executive coach, actor, author, entrepreneur, and motivational speaker, and one of the very few certified master trainers of neuro-linguistic programming, also commonly called NLP. So let's enjoy our guests. So Steve and Alan, how did you both meet and what were your first impressions of each other? <laughs> Alan, I'm going to pass this one to you. I remember from our uh, book launch, this very first question came up. Yeah, and I, it's one of my favorite stories. It, it is just such a special story in terms of how the outcomes happened. So, Michelle, you've mentioned NLP. I've been interested in NLP for many years. But the way that I describe my interest is a bit like walking along the side of the swimming pool, looking at it, but not jumping in. And I came across an introduction session that Steve was running, and I thought, I'm going to do that. And so I went along, and in the first morning session, I started to realize that everything that Steve was talking about was very, very closely aligned to our first book, The 31 Practices, which is about organizational values. And so at the coffee break, uh, Steve, I, I'm sure you'll remember this, I, I said to Steve, how do, how do you fancy writing a, a review of The 31 Practices book? And Steve was very polite and said, yeah, I'd love to do this. And so we agreed that, didn't want to interrupt him too much because he was working, delivering this training. And I went back for the second session. And it just kept coming. <laughs> you know, the, the alignment just kept getting stronger and stronger and stronger. 
And so at lunchtime, I said to Steve, you remember at coffee break, I asked if you'd write a review of the, the first book. I've got a bigger, bolder question for you. Would you like to co-author a book with me <laughs> about the My 31 Practices approach? And the rest is history, as they say, Steve. Absolutely. I remember that really well, Alan. At the time, I was, I was hungry to write a book. I was ready to write a book. And Alan was in the audience. And we were talking about values. I was delivering on NLP, which is neuro-linguistic programming. And for anybody who's not familiar with neuro-linguistic programming, what that really is, is neuro is the mind and how we use our neurology to take in information from the world around us. Linguistic is how we assign language to give meaning to our experience, how we interpret our experience and give it meaning. And programming is really the resultant patterns of behavior that we run. And one of the biggest filters that we have in our programming is our unconscious values and beliefs. And our values really are what's important to us. They are the center of, of who we are. They're our moral compass, for example. We, we use them as a barometer to recognize things that we do that satisfy things that are important to us and how we feel bad when we compromise those values. And so I was delivering a, a session on values. And as Alan had written my 31 practices and we talked about the book, and first of all, he'd asked me to review it, as he said, and then the synergy was just so strong that it just seemed like such a natural fit. And, and as Alan said, the rest is history. 18 months later, the book was out and published. So that was the, the beginning of the journey. Boy, you two came together. And in my notes, I keep going, alchemy. These are alchemists. You know, look at the alchemy of the mix of this transdisciplinary approach and these careers and these personalities. And so was it difficult to collaborate or was it just a smooth ride? Because sometimes, you know, alchemy can be taking all kinds of different energies and making them equate to something fantastic. Yeah, I think we need, yeah. there's a big, big thank you to Dropbox from us. <laughs> <laughs> so because we're, we don't live that close, so Steve at the time was in Malaga, I was in London, and the illustrator that also joined the project, John, is in Nottingham. And so the chance for us to meet on a face-to-face -face basis were few and far between, although we did make the time to make that happen from time to time. But most of the time we collaborated simply through Dropbox. And again, the alignment piece is really important here because once we decided on the structure of the book, it was a question of trusting in each other to take the lead on certain parts or chapters, and then equally trusting the other person to adjust, amend, review accordingly. So it Really, it felt very seamless, apart from the end, Steve. I think the end, the end of the book project where we were proofreading, that was the bit where, yeah, <laughs> that sums it up well. <laughs> I think people underestimate the ultrathon of writing. And personally, I'm a speaker who likes to write. So I am so delighted with some new advances in technology that let me do a little talking and that creates the books. <laughs> Go ahead, Steve. I was going to say I was really grateful to Alan because Alan had already written a book. So he had the structure in and the process already down pat. And so we didn't have to create that from scratch. Alan sort of brought it to the table and he was very organized. And the chapters in, in Dropbox, as he said, you know, we, Dropbox was so important to the relationship. And every now and again, we, we'd all get together in London. Uh, Alan would be there. John would come down as well. And we would, we would either meet in the British Museum or in, in the, the hotel at Charing Cross Station or at uh, King's Cross Station. And we would then do some collaborative stuff together, which was really important because being remote, 
just remote would probably not have that personal connection as much as having those touch points, which was really, really important. And as Alan said, you know, the very beginning of the process, it's where like, what can we put in this book? And this is the creative bit. And yeah, we could put that in, we could put that in. What about this quote? And what about this? Which was fantastic. And then as Alan said, when we got to the end, and it was the proofreading bit, I mean, I love the creative bit, but I'm not really that much of a detailed person. And, and we would go through this word by word, page by page, which was my idea of hell. <laughs> and, and because I'm a big picture thinker, you know, the words that are incorrect, perhaps, you know, they don't leap off the page and grab me by the lapels and say, you shall not pass until you correct me. So we would go through these and send them to the publisher, knowing full well that the publisher would still find loads of things that we missed and feed them back to us. So for me, that was the painful bit. So the, the previous bit was joy. Yeah. I totally empathize. I did a doctorate and my grandson was my proofreader. And uh, secret confession here, I am really bad at grammar. Great at spelling, but grammar, I don't know where I was when they had those classes, but none of it stuck. So my grandson would proofread and he'd go, you can't start a sentence with and. And I'm like, why not? And he's like, seriously, you're writing a doctorate? And I'm like, Oh, shame moment. <laughs> so I'm totally with you. You know, I'm a stratospheric thinker according to the Hogan assessment. So, you know, I, I'm often uh, coached, take those baby steps back down to earth and bring them back up slowly with you. And I'm like, ah, oh, I need help. I need help. So I really liked this book, but I would like you to comment on why is my 31 practices so valuable in your own words? Well, I, in my own words, I think that's not for me to say. I think it's for people that have used it and it's for them to say. So there are a couple of people that I've been working with recently, actually. One guy, he is an ex-teacher, was teaching in China and unfortunately suffered an injury while learning martial arts. And the operation went wrong, which resulted in him losing partial use of one of his legs. So he returned to the UK. He's now at home and not working and struggling from time to time. So I was introduced to him by a mutual acquaintance, and we agreed that it might be interesting for him to work on his values and for us to work through the My 31 Practices approach, which he did. And he's done it with such great discipline and effort and investment of time, probably the best that I've ever known anybody do it. And we've been working together for, I guess, around about six months now. And a, about a month ago on a call like this, he said to me, Alan, I don't say this lightly, but this has changed my life. And I, I, the hairs on the back of my neck tingle. And what he described to me is that previously he was obsessed with his restrictions, whereas now he realizes the difference that he's able to make despite his restrictions. And so that's what I think My 31 Practices brings to people, a really strong sense of awareness of what's important to them and the ability to actually put that into daily practice. Yeah, and I, that's a great comment, Alan, a great example. And, and I think the, it's the practical nature also of the book. It's not just a book about theories. It lays out a strategy and a methodology for actually working with your values, connecting with them, understanding them, and then designing ways to actually implement them in daily life. And I think it's the practical element that also makes such a big difference, exactly as Alan's just describing there. You know, action leads to, to change. 
and the potential for values to play a big part in changing our life in a positive direction is enormous if we connect with them. And I think the book lays down a strategy and a methodology for that. Thank you. Thank you. I really resonate with what you've both said. You touch on gratitude in the book as well. And in these transitioning times, I've discovered colleagues who've been quite low. So I've used doing a gratitude, an A to Z gratitude with them in terms of either texting or WhatsApping backwards and forth. What does A mean for you and that? Just to try and keep them focused in the present and, and how they can go forward with their next step being from a place of gratitude. My favorite word in the book was values superhero. I have a cape, no wand for me, no princess stuff here, but I have a cape and I loved that word values superhero. Who came up with this? Where did it come from? Do you know, I can't remember, but I'm feeling that it was at the British Library. And I remember us having a discussion around, you know, how are we going to describe this thing and us being drawn to uh, Superman, Batman, that sort of character. And then I, I don't know who mentioned it first, actually, but it was something about the V on the vest for values and the cape. And John saying, yeah, I can turn that into a really cool illustration. Steve, do you have any better re recollection yourself? I, I think you're right, Alan. I think it was the British Library. And I remember sort of this notion of, of pulling apart the shirt to reveal the, the big V and John sort of sketching that out. And so I remember that part of it vividly. But I always thought actually value came from you, actually, I thought, Alan. And then we sort of developed and played with the idea and John did some sketches from it. So it was that that kind of your superpower, you know, your your superhero, your value superhero. So it came from that because values is your superpower. If you you know if you tap into your values, it gives you that that superpower. So yeah. And the other the other dimension that I really like about that, apart from the you know this notion of it being a, a superpower and you being a superhero, I really like that thought of all you need to do is get a glimpse of your own values superhero. So it's not suggesting that it has to be something or complete. You know, you can just make a start by gaining a glimpse. And that's the beginning for you. And the other thing I loved about that image, I was just going to say about that image of sort of pulling back the shirt. It's that notion of letting out what's already within. It's not as if it's something we acquire from elsewhere. It's already inside us. And I thought that was quite powerful imagery at the time. I really resonated how you defined it, the best version of yourself. And I really, for me, I kind of stretch that into living and leaning into your legacy and, and your values being, you know, your sort of true compass on how to do that. So how does your values superhero show up? Do you got an example? That's a big question, isn't it? It's interesting, actually. I mean, one of my values, my strongest values is freedom and variety. Those are two very strong values for me. And, and it's interesting because I do a lot of work in organizations, uh, as Alan does. And when we talk about values, one of the things I say is look back at your story. You know, your values are in your story. If your values aren't in your story, then they're probably not your values. So the clues to if you want to discover what your values are, it's in, inherent in your story. And if I look back over my life, I've never really settled in one place. I've always moved around and I've always lived abroad and I've always enjoyed different cultures. And I'd spend big parts of my year, for example, either in Spain, in the Czech Republic, in Poland, in South Africa, I'm going to South Africa, in Brazil. And so I can see that value playing out so vividly 
And it's interesting when lockdown came, because I, I was on a plane two or three times every month. And then lockdown came, couldn't go anywhere. And I thought, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> How am I going to cope with this? And actually, I loved it because it was great to pause. And it was a great period of reflection. So now that we're beginning to sort of move out of that, my thoughts, again, are very much in that vein. So I moved back from Spain for, for this period of lockdown. But now that we're getting towards this, I'm beginning to find I've got itchy feet again. And that value just plays itself out in, in almost everything I do. I, I look for opportunities to be in different places. And, and that's really strong. It's palpable. So that's just one example where I can feel that value playing out. I like your words, itchy feet. My paternal grandfather and I accidentally met up at Auckland Airport, New Zealand. I was 14, heading off to New Caledonia in the South Pacific, and he was heading off to America to visit one of his daughters. And he took one look at me and got this sort of flinty glint in his eye and says, oh, hmm, itchy feet. So it's so funny to hear you say that because it just took me right back there because I'm the queen of geographical transfers. I, I, I love to travel, but I resonate with what you said. December 2019, I was like, I need to get back to Bermuda. So I left New Zealand February 1st. And then when I got here, of course, like most people, I had no idea about the pandemic until we got told about it. And I just really valued the pause. I, you know, have not been on a plane since February last year, which is really unusual to me. But I'm actually not feeling minded to be on planes. So this is an interesting sort of quite a big sea change for me that I'm actually quite content and really blessed with having a virtual podium too, so I don't have to feel like I have to be an in-person speaker anymore. So, Alan, how would you contribute to that question? Well, I'm very aware of my values consciously, but over the last few years, I've started to become more confident to seek out my values more intuitively. And so, for example... About two years ago, I was invited to speak at a conference in New York, and the guy that was organizing it explained that they couldn't pay me to go and speak. And even worse, <laughs> they couldn't afford the, the airfare either. And so the rational voice in my head was saying, well, why would you? But the values voice in my head said, look, he's a good guy. You've collaborated together on other things over the last couple of years. You enjoy photography and you enjoy New York, so you're going to tack on a weekend anyway. So why don't you go? So I confirmed that I would go along and speak at the conference. Two weeks later, he sent me the program, and on the program was Philip Kotler. Now, Philip Kotler is known as the father of marketing. And it was Philip Kotler's textbook that I had to read at university for the marketing module. And I was just amazed to be on the same platform as this guy who inspired my interest in the field of marketing. And at the conference, I introduced myself to Philip and told him the story about how I had to read his textbook at university. And he just said to me, so, Alan, I hope you're not going to hold me accountable for your career. Uh, a lovely, lovely man. And by the end of the two-day conference, I told him that I was writing a book called The Values Economy. Would he be interested to see the manuscript? He replied that he would love to because he's been interested in values for a long time. And 
I sent it to him with a very cheeky request, inviting him to write the foreword to the book if he would like to. And as a result, he did. And on the front cover of our book, Philip Kotler says, an excellent and insightful addition to our business literature. And I, my heart still races when I read those words that somebody like him should be saying something like that about our book. And my son, Sam, the co-author, said, I love the way the circle has closed, Dad, and that you read his book when you were at university, and now he has read our book, which has got something beautiful about it. Wow. Well said. Well said. I I just love synchronicity. It's just so fabulous. So when it comes to leadership communication and mastering your abilities to have an ethical based impact between us all, we've utilized a blend of skills and decades of transdisciplinary experience in the world and business. And as I've said earlier, and I'll repeat, I think it creates this powerful alchemy of possibilities. So for myself, I dove deep into different multinational organizations, ranging from investment, banking, pensions, insurance, reinsurance, just to touch on some of the industries I transited through, and then moved from the corporate world to social enterprise, sitting on the family court bench, human rights, police complaints, crossing different academic disciplines like law, philanthropy, and global leadership. And all this sounds like a mishmash or does it? So I discovered looking through the lens of my values, it made more sense than reading my career history trajectory. So this topic is so important to me. So now I'm a speaker who likes to write and podcasting provides my virtual podium. And that aligns with four of my top values and in no particular order, they communication or conversation catching as I like to call it. I'm all about fostering open dialogues and the exchange of ideas among diverse groups, as well as cooperating with others for conscious stewardship. And then wisdom, clearly, I'm devoted and leaning into my sense of purpose through serving others through wisdom and using my combined knowledge and experience in what I like to call socio-environmental imagineering. And then just like you and Sam, Alan, I'm very invested in future generations and intergenerational collaborations. And compassion is very important, not just how we treat people and planet, but also near Earth orbit and outer space. And then, Alan, I look at your sort of career trajectories and, you know, you've worked in for Intercontinental Hotel, Whitbread Brewery, Catering, Barclays Capital. You've got the UK Value Alliance and now you're consulting around values-driven service. I mean, progressive leaders in the service sector organization are well-served by what you bring. Can you speak to your values and perhaps comment how you created this trajectory? Or like me, you just followed that your intuition and your opportunities. Yeah, Michelle, it's a lovely thought, actually. So people talk about following your values, right? Other people talk about following your heart which is kind of very similar. But I think of my grandmother, actually, in this space. And I was brought up in the southwest of England in a city called Plymouth. And so when I was younger, yes, I had a a Devon country accent. And my grandmother used to say, you need to follow your nose. (laughs) And I used this at a talk that I gave recently. And One of the members of the audience said to me, I just love that idea of following your nose. And it makes absolute sense because it's the thing that's in front, isn't it? (laughs) So 
There is part of this, Michelle, which is about following your nose or your intuition. But I think if you are guided by your values, then the good stuff is given the chance to happen. So like that story of the conference, another one recently, I was connected with a school near Phoenix in Arizona because they wanted somebody to give their senior students a talk about values for an hour. So I had the pre-call with Mary, the teacher, and I asked the innocent question during the conversation, has your school got a set of values? And Mary said, well, no, we don't. So I said, well, how do you feel about having a set of values? And she said, I think that would be wonderful. So then I said, and how do you feel about your senior students managing that process and leading that process so that when they leave the school next spring, they leave the legacy of the set of school values. How would that be? And she was just thrilled with the idea. We briefed the senior students on the process. They did it. They articulated it. We helped them to refine and communicate the values and embed them. And what a project that was. Now, that was not paid work at all. But I use a phrase which is pay more disrespect to money. Because, you know, if, if you use money to help you make decisions, I find that sometimes you end up in the wrong place. Whereas if you use your values to make the decisions, that, that project is probably my favorite project over the last 12 months. And the commercial side of it is irrelevant. So to answer your question, you can follow your values and you can either do that in a very conscious way, or as I've learned more recently, you can just follow your intuition or your nose and get to the same end result. Steve, how would you expand on those on your with your thoughts? Similar, I think, to to Alan. Really, I'm a very big picture thinker. I think a chunking, you know, a chunk in big chunks. And if I look back over all the decisions that I've made about things that I've done and the key things that have led me to that, I started my well, even going back before that, when I was at school, I remember the careers masters asking, you know, what, what I wanted to do and saying I had fuzzy edges, which at the time I thought was an insult, but I've grown to understand that was actually probably the greatest compliment anyone's ever paid me. But when somebody said, what do you want to do? I said, well, initially I said, I want to be a policeman and a fireman and a doctor and an astronaut and, a, and this whole list, because I didn't want to restrict it to one thing because, you know, the world is so rich that I, I didn't want to just have a small piece of the experience of what that world was. And it seemed to me natural that being an actor would, would give me the opportunity to do all these things. So I fixated on becoming an actor. And I remember seeing a newspaper in a school library and it had a picture of an actor called Kathleen Turner, who at the time had just made a movie called Body Heat. This is going back many years. And it said that she trained at the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama. And I said to myself in that library, that's where I'm going to go and train. And then I fixated on that and I auditioned for drama school and I did my round of auditions, five different drama schools. And there was RADA and Bristol and Central and a, and a few others, which were lower down the sort of reputation order. And I remember I was so desperate to be an actor that I wanted more than anything. To just, and I was, in, I was in a hurry as well. But I didn't get into, I got recalled at all of them, but I didn't get into the, the, the big ones and I didn't get into Central. But I did get into one of the lesser ones. And there was a huge part of me that said, you know, go, go now. Now is the time. Go do it. And the other part of me thought, no, wait 12 months and go come back and do it again because I wanted central. And the risk was that I, I would not take the drama school I had on offer. I would wait a year and come back and not get in anywhere. And so I had that kind of dilemma of really wanting to start so badly, but really wanting central as the place I wanted to go to. 
And I made the decision to go off and work for a year, come back and re-audition. And I came back and re-auditioned and I got into Central. So, which was, again, that was a values-driven thing. And for someone who was really hungry and impatient at the beginning, and with all those fears and doubts of not getting in anywhere, uh, that was a big decision. And I, I didn't really understand it at the time because I didn't have the life experience or the language around it. But I realized so strongly after that, that that was a values-driven decision. And as Alan says, not thinking about the money, i.e. taking something which was on offer right in front of me, but actually wanting something more important than the money or going this year. It was going to the place I wanted. And so that that really was a, a huge lesson for me. But even more than that, sitting in the audition room at the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama and having a, spending a weekend there of having to do speeches and songs and back in and back out and directors redirecting you and, and then back into a room full of all that nervous energy. And because you were so hungry and I was so hungry, I couldn't eat. So I had this knot in my stomach and it was really painful. And I remember sitting on the floor next to another guy. We had no theatrical background at all. And the room was full of the sons and daughters of famous actors who were my heroes. And they were all so confident and singing songs from West End shows just for fun. And, and their, their audition songs were from Les Miserables. And my audition song was Happy Birthday. And I'm not kidding. And I remember after two days thinking, I'm in the wrong place. What on earth am I thinking, thinking that I could be here, I should be here, I deserve to be here? Why am I doing this to myself? And after two days, at the end of the second day, this lady walked in with a clipboard and she read out two names, my name and the guy sat next to me. And we kind of looked at each other with knowing looks. And then she said, everybody else, I'm really sorry, it hasn't worked out this time and sent them home. And that moment really changed my life because I realized that actually, if you follow your passion, if you really want something so badly that you're prepared to put yourself through that pain to get it, then you can achieve all kinds of things in your life. And that moment made me realize that I'm not a statistic. People had said this, X thousand people apply for X places, but those are statistics and statistics offer averages. And you're an only average if you choose to be average. And that moment was a values-driven moment that changed, I think, probably the course of my life. And ever since then, it's always been about the exploration of what's possible. And I think everything I've ever done has been a reflection of that. And what I do now and you know, working with Alan and working with values and working with people and personal development is, is really a reflection of that too. What is possible if you really connect to what's important to you? So it's really been a guiding, a guiding light for me. Well put. When I was a teenager, I got a chance to do modeling. And, you know, nothing gives you more confidence than knowing how to stand before an audience and know how to stand and how to talk and, you know, show up. But, you know, from acting, filmmaker, all sorts of things that you've done to now being a master of NLP, would you like to share with the audience about what you do and what services you can provide that they might like to hear about? Alan, do you want to start or? You go ahead. Okay. Um, so, so now I run a, a company called the Academy of Coaching and Training, and it, it trains, the company trains professional coaches. And even more than the certificate, uh, so you get a, an accredited certificate in coach training at the end of it, accredited by the Association for Coaching, you get an NLP practitioner certificate, accredited by the Association for NLP. But more than that, more than those certificates, for me, this is a life skills training that will will set you in good stead for anything you choose to do in your life. Because the kind of communication skills that you referred to earlier, our ability to communicate in an elegant fashion, to understand other people and where other people come from, and to form connections, those are the most important skills, I think, that we can possess. They are the bedrock of everything. And so the training really is a coach training and NLP training, but it's so much more than that too. 
and, and also public speaking, because my background, of course, public speaking is an absolute passion of mine. So I train people to be able to speak in public and write speeches in public. So that's, that's the scope of what I do. Uh, for me, it's all personal development, because speaking is a life skill. And it's not just about speaking. It's about so much more than that. So I run courses, accredited courses in, in those fields. And I take those into not only individuals, but also into organizations. And I help leaders lead in an elegant, values-driven way. So that's, that's really the scope of what I do. Alan? Yeah, so for me, it's quite a mix of stuff, but all values-based. So I do a lot of pro bono work with the UK Values Alliance, and I founded the Global Values Alliance, heavily involved in World Values Day. And then on the commercial side, I work with organizations to implement, or I should say to design and then implement, values-driven service. And that allows them to perform on a sustained basis rather than kind of flash-in-the-pan performance. And the reason this is important to me is because lots of people talk about excellent service, but unless that excellent service is in a style, a particular style and a relevant style, I feel that people are really missing a lot. This has been a brilliant interview, but thank you both of you so much for the contribution. It's a very rich conversation. I know it will be well received. Thank you, Michelle. Cheers. Dr. Michelle St. Jean is a conscious steward of meaningful leadership in the world and the wider cosmos. Tune in every Thursday for real talk around life, leadership, and your conscious journey. Be ready to create and cultivate your dreams and soul-hearted desires. Your support is valued. Please subscribe. Leave a review and a rating. But more importantly, share with your connections.